You're listening to The Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. Serious talk about the sacred book. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Well, hello, normal people. Thank you for hanging with us. Today, our topic is the Bible and the gay Christian. We're talking with Matthew Vines, who is the founder and executive director of the Reformation Project, which is a, a nonprofit dedicated to reforming church teaching on sexual orientation and gender identity. Right, and he's also the author of a book that came out, what, maybe two, three years ago, I think 2014, God and the Gay Christian, which is his very, I guess, bridge-building book on how to help people see, let's say, the complexities of biblical interpretation when it comes to the issue of human sexuality. And I found this, one reason I'm very excited to have Matthew on the podcast is because this is an issue that I think a lot of Christians keep coming back to because so many complex things intersect here. It's uh, philology, that's a boring way of saying just what words mean in Greek and Hebrew and what those words mean in their ancient context and what are ancient assumptions and how does all that factor into how we read the Bible. And throw into the mix things like the function of the law in the Old Testament for Christians today. Throw into the mix the history of interpretation of these texts, both you know, before the time of Christ and certainly in the church thereafter, and how that has influenced how many people understand some of these texts. It really is sort of a roller coaster ride of interpretation and theology and philology, and it's almost like it's, it's, a, it's a topic where a lot of these issues just come home to roost in a way that's also of such practical and personal importance to many people. Yeah, and I think that's the important thing to also in this is one thing that's interesting to me is it's so clouded in a lot of emotion, maybe rightly so, in personal relationships. There's a lot at stake in a lot of these, so the emotions are high. But at root, like what you said, is it also comes down to some of these practical uh, biblical interpretation and tools and resources and comes back to what is the Bible and what do we do with it? So thinking through that uh, lens, it helps us to maybe um, keep our emotions in check, but also then employ them when it's important to do so. So I think it's a helpful topic. All right, let's get into our conversation with Matthew Vines. I don't, so in Romans 1, I'm not saying Christians should, you know, tut-tut and not want to take Paul seriously. I think we should want to take Paul seriously, but we also have to recognize Paul's not talking about gay Christians in Romans 1. Paul's talking about people, he says, abandon or exchange heterosexual sex, uh, you know, in, in what he just describes repeatedly as, you know, lustful desires. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and she said, can I try some? And so I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work. And just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code normal people. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code normal people for 30% off and free shipping. 
microdose.com promo code normal people. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music chord by chord and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template with monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. All right, Matthew, thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. You know, I've noticed, you know, I've listened to some of your YouTube stuff and read your book, God and the Gay Christian. I've noticed that you're really, like, ironic. So what's wrong with you? Uh, what do you mean? You need to be on the attack, man. That's the only way to get things across in the Christian world. Don't you know that? I'm not sure that that's actually. <laughs> no, you're probably right. Trust your instincts on that one. That's something I would do, but I'm glad you're not. So, anyway, well, listen, let's get right into this here. Um, you've had a journey, obviously, and you and your book, you talk about your family and your journey with your family coming out to them and having discussions, especially with your dad. And, and maybe just get us, yeah, help us understand yourself a little bit better and your journey by maybe talking about that process with your family. Cause I think a lot of listeners haven't had that same experience that you've had. Right. Well, in many ways, everything that I'm doing now is very deeply shaped by my family and my experience growing up. So it is worth uh, going into some detail about, I was raised, in, I was born and raised in Wichita, Kansas, in a conservative Presbyterian church there. And my parents were both lay leaders in our church. Our church was pretty much the center of our friendships and of our life outside of home. And for me and my older sister, my our faith in Jesus was the most important thing that my parents wanted to share with us. So we were very involved in church from a young age. And I, one of my very first memories actually is at age three, asking Jesus into my heart to be my Lord and savior. And so I didn't have some, I don't really remember very much of not being Christian. It just feels like that was kind of in my DNA from the outset. And also I would say my parents did a really good job of, living out their faith in ways that made it really appealing. And just, it was easy for me and my sister to see on a regular basis how my parents' Christian faith made them better people, made them more inclined to love and grace and compassion and forgiveness. And that was an easy thing to also want to be at the center of my life. So that was kind of the background in terms of our family and church. And then in college, you, you took a leave of absence. You were, you were what, maybe at, at Harvard for a couple of years? Is that right? Right. So I graduated from high school in Wichita, and then I went off to Harvard for college, which was a little bit of culture shock, but in many ways good, in some ways not as good. But one of the best differences was how completely different the environment was on campus at Harvard when it, come, when it came to LGBTQ issues. Well, that's almost a misnomer. They weren't issues in many ways. At least it didn't feel to me. Uh, it just was. And there just were openly gay professors and students. 
there just were, you know, married same-sex couples in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and it wasn't controversial, which was a radically different experience than the environment that I had been raised in growing up. And even though I, by the time I'd left for college, I felt somewhat conflicted about my church's position on the topic of same-sex relationships. Uh, it was still a transformative experience for me to get to be in a setting where all of those arguments that, that people will make against gayness or you know, same-sex marriage are able to be put to the test every day up against the reality of people's lives. And once you're able to do that, those arguments start to feel really unpersuasive. Um, so that for me was, was, a, was very helpful. I got involved in the, a, a conservative Christian fellowship. You know, at Harvard, of course, I sought out the only places that would not be accepting if I came out. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it's because I wanted, to have, uh, I wanted to have a community that would support me in my faith. And that's why I found the most continuity with the faith that I had learned in, in church and at home growing up. Uh, but by the end of my first year at Harvard, I had really done, uh, I'd really come around in terms of feeling not only that the church that I'd been raised in was wrong on this topic, but feeling passionate about it and seeing this as an issue of human dignity and justice and equality and wanting to be an advocate. But that all, I had to do that entire 180 before I could even ask myself then the next semester whether or not I might actually be gay, which unfortunately I realized very quickly the answer was yes, and I was not pleased about that, even though I already had changed my mind. I'd already studied the topic. I already didn't think there was anything wrong with being gay. I just didn't want to go through that because it just presents so many uh, obstacles in terms of everybody who's ever been a part of your life for the most part and how they're going to respond to that, and I didn't want to deal with it. So, so your, your process and your experience was sort of this intellectual or maybe social process and experience and and then it was kind of personalized and the question came to you maybe maybe i'm gay or the question came am i gay so is that is that right so the the mindset shifted around this whether it was so what were the arguments that made you change your mind specifically were there examples experiences um teachers how did you change that mindset first well, one argument that I have long made in the years since I've been doing this work publicly that I tend to hear the most about from people is when I refer to Jesus' teaching in Matthew 7, in the Sermon on the Mount, where he's talking about trees and their fruit. And he says that good trees cannot bear bad fruit and bad trees cannot bear good fruit. And then by their fruit, you will recognize them. And he's referring to false teachers or false prophets. But that basic principle that we should be able to look at the fruit of a person or a position, and that tells us something significant, is something that I've really taken to heart. Because what I experienced just from getting to know more at the time, just gay people, was realizing the church's position is incredibly harmful to gay people. And I've seen the tears and the destruction and the rejection and the incredible turmoil and trauma that that's inflicted on so many people 
So that sat incredibly uneasily with me and really made me want to go back to the biblical text to ask whether or not what my church had told me really lined up with what was there to be found with a deeper study of scripture. And that's where my freshman year, even before I'd even come out to myself, I just realized as I was looking through the biblical text, I was like, I don't think that this is quite as clear cut as people back home at church imagine that it is. And the consequences of their position are so devastating that that should seem to be pretty weighty if it's not that clear cut. Well, let's, let's jump into the biblical text. I mean, that, the Bible for normal people, uh, why we're here. But also, you know, growing up also at kind of conservative um, evangelical, for me, I think that's really important because there's uh, a lot of times the confusion, or I, I would say the argument that, oh, you had an emotional experience, and so that changed yeah, how you viewed it's subjective, you were around <clears throat> bad influences, and so these sorts of things. But you mentioned it changed how you read the biblical text, and I think that's the stumbling block for a lot of people on this particular in this particular area. So let's jump into that, and maybe maybe mention Matthew the first. What was the first, if you can remember, kind of compelling aha moment you had from the scripture itself that helped you start to change your mind about this? Well, there were several, so I'll just say one that comes to mind. I remember going to back up in time a little bit. When I was 15, I was in high school, and Kansas was going to be voting on a constitutional amendment to ban same-sex marriage. And I remember I had heard some people at school for the first time saying more sympathetic things about gay marriage and how they thought that this amendment was wrong and was discriminatory against gay people. I kind of thought about it and I went to my dad and I was like, so, you know, dad, how are you going to vote on this amendment? He said he was going to vote for the ban. And I said, well, you know, don't you think that's discrimination against gay people? And he said, well, <laughs> you know, maybe it is, but um, he actually then pulled out his Bible and opened it to Genesis chapter 19 with the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, where you have these angel visitors in the form of men who go into the city of Sodom, and then the men of Sodom threaten to gang rape the men. And then God destroys the city with fire and brimstone. So my dad just kind of read that to me, closed it, and said, well, you know, that's why we're against gay rights, because here these men wanted to have sex with other men, and they were punished for it because that's wrong. And I remember at the time feeling like, I don't, that doesn't feel quite right to me, like, I I don't really see the same thing there, but I didn't have, I didn't know enough. I was just kind of like, well, okay, that doesn't really sound persuasive to me, but I get that that's where you're coming from. And then when I was studying this in more depth, and actually once I had come out to my dad and he had committed to, even though he didn't agree at the time, he still committed to study this issue further with me and to actually really go back and look at scripture more carefully. And that was the first passage where he then had a, an aha moment himself and began to realize that some of the things he had imagined about that text didn't look quite the same once his lens for reading the text was not just, can I find anything related to same-sex behavior? But then his governing question at that point was, Matthew, my son, is gay and would like to have the type of relationship that I have with my wife with another man is that type of relationship spoken to in this text. And suddenly gang, the threatened gang rape of men by men didn't seem to be as pertinent to that question. 
as it had been when he was just looking for anything related to same sex anything. So I would say that was uh, an, a really important point for my dad, at least. And it was looking at things like that. I guess it's just that question of, you know, what are the questions that you're asking when you're approaching the text? And for me, as those questions started to change, I think I was able to look more deeply at some of those passages. Well, you know, what I think provides the energy that a lot of people feel about this issue, it's similar, it's not the same thing, obviously, but it's similar to things like evolution. The Bible is, quote, so clearly against something that a lot of the fear seems to be generated by this fear of losing this controlling text that helps you understand the nature of life. But what you're doing, forgive me, you know, if I'm wrong, tell me that, uh, you're actually trying to look at it more carefully, the text itself. So let's stay with Sodom and Gomorrah. What sort of things did you find there through, not just, you know, morning devotions, but you actually studied these texts and right. found some things that you found were actually illuminating and interesting about what, these, what that story meant in its context. So help us and our listeners understand what you're seeing there, because for a lot of people, this is a slam dunk issue, Sodom and Gomorrah. Right, and it's interesting because there are plenty of other people who can't imagine how anybody could think this is about gay people without being some foaming at the mouth, um, you know, bigoted person. <laughs> and so what I try to help, especially people who are, who are LGBTQ affirming, what I try to help people see is that there may be people who still look at this text as a warrant for their opposition to same-sex relationships, but more out of a superficial engagement with the topic than out of any malicious intent. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I kind of described in brief the story. Do you want me to go into any more detail about the story itself? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, you know, in Genesis 18, you have God come to Abraham and Sarah, promises that they will have a child. Sarah laughs, of course, and then denies it. Um, and God then <laughs> tells Abraham that he is, that, you know, he's heard the cries about the wickedness of Sodom. And so he is going to destroy Sodom. And Abraham bargains with God not to destroy the city of Sodom if God can find at least 10 righteous people there. He gets God down from 50 to 10. But of course, as we find out, that's still too high a number. God then sends his two angel visitors in the form of men. Nobody wants to let them into their home for the night except for Lot, Abraham's nephew, who of course is not a native from Sodom. He's, you know, it takes a a foreign transplant who's the only, buddy who's gonna, only person who's going to show any hospitality. He lets them in, shows them that courtesy and hospitality. But then it says, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house and called out um, to Lot, who, you know, bring out the men who came to you tonight so that we can have sex with them. Lot says, no, you, shouldn't, you can't do anything to these men for they've come under the protection of my roof. But... <laughs> you can have my virgin daughters, which uh, is pretty disturbing <laughs> to yeah. read. Um, and something I think a lot of modern readers and Christians today wish would have come up later on, you know, when Lot's described as a righteous person, <laughs> uh, as like, <laughs> well, you know, he had, that was pretty big, pretty big misstep right there. But the point is that Lot is specifically saying, and then of course the angels blind the men thwarting their attack plan, and Lot and his family flee. God destroys the city with fire and brimstone. But several points to notice. One, God was already planning to destroy the city of Sodom in Genesis 18. 
we've already heard about their wickedness in kind of general terms. So the idea that there's just a single sin of Sodom, first of all, isn't consistent with what the rest of, with what the rest of scripture says about the sins of Sodom being rather, uh, you know, multi-layered. But so what we're seeing with the threatened gang rape, I think is more just a particularly egregious illustration of the depravity of these people. But you have all of the men from every part of the city who are threatening to participate in this gang rape. So some people then imagine that Sodom was like the Gaberhood or something of the ancient Near East, <laughs> which of course is, is not really the case because in fact, in ancient societies, uh, gang rape of men by men was a common tactic of humiliation and of domination in warfare and other hostile contexts. I mean, that still happens in modern contexts, in jails and other settings, but it was uh, certainly used for you know, purposes of humiliation. It's not about um, primarily you know, romantic interest or attraction. It's not like people were like, you know, on Tinder and were like, oh, we all want to swipe right, but we don't believe in consent, and so we're going to do it in a horrible way. It has nothing to do with that kind of you know, interest or attraction. But on top of that, you have every subsequent reference to Sodom and Gomorrah in the Bible. There are more than 20 references after Genesis 19, and not a single one says that the sin of Sodom was related to same-sex behavior. In fact, Ezekiel is the most explicit. Ezekiel quotes God in 1649, saying, Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. There are plenty of other texts that talk about the general depravity of Sodom, but that, you know, Jeremiah 23 links it with adultery, idolatry, power abuses. Amos and Zephaniah talk, compare it to oppressing the poor, as well as pride and mockery. There are two texts in the New Testament that do refer to sexual sin in general, in reference to the sin of Sodom. One is 2 Peter 2, verse 7 which says that Lot was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. And one is Jude 7. Yeah. And those two texts are connected. Right. They, they, they seem to be relying on each other, one on the other. So they're almost like one text at that point. But anyway, yeah, go Right. And so Jude says that Sodom and Gomorrah, quote, gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. So some translations will render perversion differently. Some even say unnatural desire, which is why some people then try to say, aha, that's a reference to same-sex desire. But the phrase there is sarkos heteros, literally meaning different flesh. And so in all likelihood, it's more plausible that that refers to the attempted rape of angels, given that Jude 6 refers to the Nephilim of Genesis 6, talks about the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their proper dwelling. Mm -hmm. uh, and so once again, in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, you have sort of attempted human angel sexual contact. But... The point is, even if there had been specific references to same-sex behavior that were more clear-cut in scripture, what we're talking about is an attempted or threatened gang rape. That's just completely different than the question of same-sex relationships that are based on consent, much less mutuality, commitment, love. Uh, and so it's just a completely different question. And I think, again, if Christians are going to the Bible and asking, where can I find anything related to same-sex anything, and are they positive or negative, then they're going to say, aha, here's one, and it's really negative. But that is not a thoughtful or appropriate way to be engaging scripture on this question. 
that is never how we think about opposite sex. You know, it's never how we think about heterosexuality is let's find every verse about heterosexuality and then, sorry, I should get a drink of water. <laughs> let's find every verse about heterosexuality and then just weight them. And we have, you know, 300 positive ones and 400 negative ones. So it's probably like, okay, but leans toward bad. That's not a thoughtful way to approach these questions. Um, you have to be a little more contextual. No one would ever suggest that sex between a man and a woman has some uniform moral valence. And it just is a morally good thing or is a morally bad thing. Sometimes it can be morally good. Sometimes it can be morally bad. There's quite a spectrum of how we look at that based on context, based on relationship, based on consent, based on a whole range of factors. And if people are going to apply that level of nuance to thinking about heterosexuality, there's really no reason why we shouldn't apply the same nuance to thinking about same-sex issues and to thinking about gay sexuality. So the question is not just, what are all the same-sex behaviors that you can find referenced, but what types of same-sex behavior are referenced in scripture, and do those have a meaningful similarity to the types of committed, loving relationships of many same-sex couples today? And certainly the story of Sodom and Gomorrah does not. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. You know, Pete, I've been pretty emotional this week, and I was trying to reflect on why that was. And it turns out, you know, my best friend from college just died. My mom's been in the hospital, and I just haven't taken the time to reflect and process all of that. And it's been coming out in all these wonky ways, and that's exactly what therapy can help with. That's really been my experience with therapy as well. I've benefited tremendously from therapy, and I think lately I've been able to get to the point of why. It's learning to look at your situation more as an observer from the outside instead of just reacting to things, just thinking about it and processing the information. I find a lot of the problems become more manageable that way. And that's what therapy does for me. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BNP today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BNP. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for Normal People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener to the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. Right. So 
let's maybe jump over to a text like Leviticus 18, which I think is probably the most used. And within that, there's often kind of a negative argument, which is, oh, sure, that does condemn it. But, you know, you also have in Leviticus not eating shrimp and not mixing uh, different types of cloth in your clothing. So that's kind of a negative kind of argument of saying, hey, don't pick and choose. But is there a what would you say Leviticus 18 and 20 are really speaking to um, in this context then? Are you, so you're saying, is there a positive? Is there, a po- is there, you know, you, you've talked, I think, uh, rather well and convincingly about the, deep, the deeper meaning of Sodom and Gomorrah. And what does the rest of the Bible actually attest as the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah? And it is inhospitality, not taking care of the needy. That's pretty explicit. But with a text like Leviticus 18, you know, I, I've mostly only heard the negative argument. Um, oh, well, you can't pick and choose, but not kind of a positive exegetical approach of well, what is the text talking about then? Yeah, what is what does this text not condemn what we think of today as same-sex relations? Right. right, okay, so there are a couple of layers to that. One, some people will argue, oh, well, this doesn't condemn modern-day same-sex relationships because it was really about cultic temple prostitution. I don't agree with that. Okay. I think that that's trying to create distinctions without really sufficient textual support for mm. them. I do think based on, especially the scholarship of Saul Olyan and Daniel Boyarin, that these passages in Leviticus 18, 22 and 2013 are blanket prohibitions on male same-sex anal intercourse. It's not specifically about some temple prostitution somewhere, but is a prohibition of that act categorically. There are then sort of two ways of of engaging with that. One, and I think it's particularly relevant for Christians, we do have to ask what is the place of the Old Testament law Mm -hmm. in the lives of Christian believers? And it's not the same as it was for the ancient Israelites. The old law, it's not to say that it doesn't matter or is irrelevant. I think it does matter and is relevant, but it's relevant in different ways. And it's just not the case that we can import wholesale the sexual prohibitions or codes of the Old Testament and say, aha, that's whatever Christians should consider to be sexual immorality, porneia in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Um, some people will try to argue, yeah, you know, yes, you have these ceremonial prohibitions, but it's the moral prohibitions that are the ones that haven't changed. But again, I think that's also trying to create a distinction that isn't really in the text itself. And there are other sexual prohibitions as well, even in Leviticus 18, like the prohibition of having sex with a woman during her menstrual period in Leviticus 18:19, that Christians mostly would not feel comfortable just kind of, you know, taking and saying, aha, yes, we also consider that to be a grievous sin. Mm-hmm. Most people don't look at that that way. Um, and so I think the first and most important question in some sense is just, and maybe that's more of the negative argument, but it is acknowledging that there is a difference in how Christians um, should be reading and living by the Old Testament, the Old Law, as compared to the ancient Israelites. But there's another question that I think is pertinent because people will ask, well, you know, if the purpose of the law was something that hasn't changed then it's something Christians should still live by. And I think that that's a fair principle to guide us in a lot of questions. The problem is that, again, what is the purpose of a law? That's something that's subject to our own debate and interpretation, but I don't think that's me, but I still think we should, we should engage in that effort. So one argument that people will make, they'll say, ah, oh, the purpose of this law 
of prohibiting male same-sex relations is that men and women were made for heterosexual union, and therefore same-sex unions violate God's divinely intended gender complementarity. I actually don't think that that is the most persuasive reading of why that law existed for several reasons, but I won't go into all of them. Um, one is that the Old Testament law says nothing about female same-sex relations, which should, in theory, be just as objectionable as male same-sex relations if that's the issue, that you know heterosexuality was God's intent. And it's also not true that the Old Testament law just doesn't talk about women, because actually those same chapters specifically have laws that women are not supposed to have sex with animals which you would think also wouldn't be an issue that comes up that much, but um, that, you know, it's, it's not to say that women's <clears throat> sexual agency is completely, you know, just ignored and that's why that didn't mm -hmm. come up. But I think what's much more plausible, especially based on early interpretations of these texts and on contemporaneous literature and law codes, is that the fundamental problem with male same-sex intercourse was that it subverted the patriarchal gender norms on which all ancient societies rested, that men are to be dominant in sex and women are to be submissive. Mm -hmm. So for a man to have sex with another man, specifically anal sex, is for a man to treat another man's masculinity as though it is femininity. And in a society that sees femininity as the equivalent of, you know, every vice you can imagine, that's a horrific thing if the core of what you're trying to hold on to is a patriarchal societal order. So I think that that's also because if you look at the Talmud, uh, you know, the early rabbinic commentaries in the early centuries AD, it's really interesting because it distinguishes between anal sex between men and other sexual acts between men. And it said, they said that only the former was prohibited in Leviticus and that the, uh, the other same sex acts between men, they still didn't look upon positively, but they didn't see them as, as serious of violations because they didn't symbolically subvert the patriarchal order in the same way. And so I think that's much more plausible as the reason behind these prohibitions is around the patriarchal context. So then that raises more of a hermeneutical question for Christians today, which is, what is the status of patriarchy in the church? What is the status of patriarchy in the kingdom of God? And what should Christians believe about patriarchy? Obviously, there are, you know, two dominant camps in the church today, your complementarians who are, you know, believe that patriarchy is God's design and egalitarians who don't. Um, I am an egalitarian, so I don't believe the patriarchy is part of God's design. And I would look at that through, you know, looking at what is the sort of blueprint that we see in the New Testament, not only in how Jesus treats women, but also what Paul says, not just in Galatians 3 about our, you know, all our baptismal status before God and that basic equality that we have before God. Uh, but also, you know, just basic things, even in the Pauline epistles that cut against the grain in uh, more egalitarian directions compared to, you know, what you see in First Corinthians 7 about how it's not just the husband who has, who has authority over the, the wife's body, but the wife also has equal authority over her husband's body. That's not to say that there are not still patriarchal um, you know, elements that we see reflected in the New Testament, there are, but I think we need to look at, you know, what is, what is the trajectory that we're seeing within the New Testament and what is the ultimate blueprint of the kingdom of God that we see uh, described in the New Testament. And that's one in which I think patriarchy is overcome in Christ.
So that's so, why I think, oh, sorry. No, okay, no, I guess I just want to sort of um, recap a little bit of what you're saying here. I mean, to, to sort of cut to the chase, it's not a matter of proof texting. It's a matter of trying to understand these passages in context and then employing what I think I remember correctly you call a redemptive hermeneutic. Right. I mean, that's certainly not my term. What I actually, so one thing that I did when I was studying this was I had learned the Bible. So I learned the Bible in an evangelical church. I learned the Bible from theologically conservative Christians who didn't affirm same-sex relationships. And I basically always was wanting to go back and say, and take the tools and principles that I learned in those communities and just apply them in a way that I thought was more consistent to this topic. And so that's then would kind of yield a lot of these conclusions. So redemptive hermeneutic, this actually goes back to a book by William Webb from 2001 right. called Slaves, Women, and Homosexuals, which um, you know is a, a little bit of a painful title <laughs> with, with that last um, word. But uh, it's also, I, I'm not going to endorse the book across the board. I have some methodological issues with it. I also think that a full third of it is just completely wrong. But um, I think there are good ideas in the book, some good principles in the book. And also part of the reason why I like those principles is because I have seen those principles be embraced by a lot of Christians who are not affirming of same-sex relationships. And so I know that people are, that plenty of people support this way, this approach of looking at scripture. And I just want to encourage them to kind of see it through on this topic. And that, and that approach is looking at, let's say, use the word trajectory, the trajectory of scripture, where we have sort of a conclusion that we have to come to, which is centered around the gospel and Jesus, right? Is that, is that what you mean by that? Like looking at the whole thing and then maybe it's a bit simplistic, but asking a question like, what would Jesus do in a situation like this? What does this gospel hermeneutic demand of us? In a situation, am I reading you correctly there? Well, that's maybe a more sophisticated way of putting it. I think sometimes even the most basic way of putting it is just the acknowledgement that you can't just pick any verse in scripture and uh, assume that context doesn't matter and how we should be interpreting and applying it today. So, and I just know I've almost I've met very very few Christians who don't acknowledge the necessity of interpretation. And that there, are, that there is cultural specificity in a lot of scriptural texts that influence how we live them out today. It's just a question of, so I, have, I found very little disagreement with that basic idea in principle. It's a matter of kind of what gets to fall under that umbrella. So what why do you think it's so hard for people to not apply that principle to this issue? Oh, gosh. Um, you know, I think about this a lot. I, I think there are... I'll let you do. Yeah. And I, <laughs> I actually, I don't feel like I have the answer. I think there are many different reasons that contribute together to people's depth of anxiety uh, and strength of feeling around this topic. So, you know, that's, there are a lot of theological, psychological, cultural uh, factors going into that. What I try to do in my work is to strain out what I see as the, um, I guess, the noble versus the ignoble reasons behind that. So I think that there are plenty of reasons why people oppose same-sex relationships that I can have respect 
for, even if I disagree with, whereas there are other reasons people oppose same-sex relationships that I don't have respect for. So if you oppose same-sex relationships because you think that that's the equivalent of people having sex with animals or because you think that gay men are more likely to be pedophiles, I don't have respect for that because I think that those opinions are fundamentally rooted in bigotry. But if you oppose same-sex relationships because you feel a deep sense of anxiety around the authority of scripture in your community and you're concerned that if we affirm same-sex relationships, we're going to throw out all of Paul, I have respect for, for that concern. And so I want to engage people on that in a respectful way. So I don't, you know, I think there's an admixture of both the noble and ignoble reasons for it. And so even if you successfully engaged all of the more noble reasons, that doesn't necessarily eliminate, right, everybody's opposition. But I think it does some really important work. And I also think that the more respectable reasons for people's opposition end up giving cover to the less respectable reasons because they all kind of go on. It's kind of like, honestly, with support for Trump. So people will say, well, if I can find one Trump supporter who doesn't base their support for him in bigotry, then you should think more positively of everybody who has this opinion, which (laughs) is just like, well, you know, that's not, you can always find some people who will be a more friendly presentation of something, but that, that can be dangerous when it's used to then obscure a lot of things that should just be uh, more actively, you know, called out and mm-hmm. opposed for, for being morally wrong. So I guess that's what I try to do. I try to be focusing on those things that are more respectable and to be engaging people in good faith, because even though not everybody's going to meet me there, I always, there are always people who will. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. You know, folks, I've had allergies my whole life and I never knew what to do with them. I didn't even know that I had allergies. But anyway, one day I went to the doctor several years ago and I said, listen, I keep having a stuffed nose and it's just my throat hurts and it's horrible. And he says, have you tried Claritin D? And I said, no, I haven't. And he said, you have to. See, luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. This double action combination of prescriptive strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. You know, I've been taking Claritin D for my allergies for about 15 years, and it's been an absolute life changer. I can go for hikes without my eyes watering like a fountain. I can speak without feeling like a frog has jumped into my throat, and my nose isn't stuffed all the time. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies, it's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear. Use as directed. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. 
we got our bushes in and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes. But we got them in last night. And fast growing trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you were in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction <laughs> level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We love the process. This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. So I have, I'm going to try to summarize what you said and maybe put it in a different way. Tell me if you would affirm this or not. It sounds like when we come back to the hermeneutics of a text like Leviticus 18, what I heard you say was there's some ambiguity, not about what it says, but about how we, what it means, if that makes sense. So uh, there's, there's that, that ambiguity of how do we apply this? And I guess one of my questions would be, would you affirm that there's this idea of this, the idea of same-sex relationships can't be untangled from the political and social implications of that in the ancient world in such a way that even maybe for Paul or others, if we were to ask at the time, they would, they would be kind of Leviticus 18, um, yeah, we were opposed to that sexual act. But the reasons might be because there's no imagination or there hasn't been that trajectory of the idea of, like you said with your dad, of that realization that, hey, maybe some people are sexually attracted to the same sex in a way that I'm attracted to my wife. That, apart from patriarchy, wasn't really even a possible thought back then. Would that be fair to say? I think so. And it's certainly true that the dominant paradigms for thinking about same-sex attraction and behavior in antiquity were quite different than the dominant paradigms in the church today, even in the non-affirming church today. Mm-hmm. They acknowledge that there is such a thing as gay people and that that's not uh, something that you can, you know, it's not just a, a switch that you can flip on and off. And it's not just something that people you kind of, you know, choose because they were having a, a wild night at the party and that that's all that's being discussed in the church is how far can people go in their wild nights at the party, mm-hmm. right? If that's all that were being discussed, this would not be an issue in the church and no one would care about it. And very few people would be passionate about, you know, creating greater acceptance for that. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Tying it. I mean, just what Pete talked about earlier, there's some parallels maybe with the evolution issue where sort of scientific discoveries or knowledge that we grow in sort of force us to uh, maybe look at the text in a different way. Is that the case here? Like um, studies in sexuality uh, around orientation, that's creating new categories that wouldn't have applied um, in the biblical arena. Right. And I think that there's actually another similar parallel would be the issue of geocentrism versus heliocentrism and the invention of the telescope in the early 17th century that then forced Christians to completely change the way that they were interpreting the scriptural texts about the sun, the moon, the stars, and the place of the earth in the universe. Um, That's not something that happened overnight, but over time that just became undeniable that we now have this new information. We can see things that prior Christians could not see, and that causes us to realize that the way we've been interpreting these texts isn't right. And so we have to look at it again, and that doesn't, that's no, you know, you don't have to 
think poorly of anybody. You don't have to think that you're smarter than people who came before you. You've just got a telescope and other people don't. You know, with evolution, you have similar scientific discoveries. I think the difference with this topic is this is so much more personal. Um, right. Less about, oh, have you read this, you know, fascinating study? It's not like there was some book like Origin of Species, you know, that's publication totally changed the conversation. It's about individual lives and stories and sons and daughters and, and you know, who are coming out and sharing their stories. And there's just an incredible level of pain and suffering that so many more Christians have be, been becoming aware of that I think it's just a, so there, there's, there's, a, there's a level of, you know, personal connection to this mm -hmm. that there isn't to the ones that are more scientific. Well, you know, what, I, what I'm seeing here, I mean, I'm, again, I'm trying to summarize here and use some language to describe what I think you're doing. You're, you're talking about trying to interpret biblical texts well and properly, trying to account for things like their context. But you're also sort of looping around to things like the human experience, whether it's the subjective experience of how you're treated or the human experience about what we've come to know about things like the earth is not the center of the universe, right? Or uh, issues that go into the complex discussion of human sexuality. So I, I is I mean I, I'm trying to say something here. Is is that a fair description? You're you're looking at not simply like hey let's look at what this text really says. The questions are really being driven by the experiences that we have as human beings, whether they're subjective personal experience or dealing with let's say the realities of the increase of knowledge about certain things. Yeah, I think so. I just try to be careful about how I talk about you know increase in knowledge because I yeah. think what a lot of conservative Christians are almost trained to hear is, well, you know, those biblical authors, they were just pretty benighted. And thank goodness, you know, that we've learned so much more than them. And as a result, who really cares what they think? And that's not at all the message that I want to promote. Because mm -hmm. my, you know, even though I think it's true that what we're talking about today with sexual orientation, with gender identity, is not what Paul was talking about in Romans 1. The point is not to then discredit Paul. It's simply right. to say that's not what he was talking about. And so I don't, so in Romans 1, I'm not saying Christians should, you know, tut-tut and not want to take Paul seriously. I think we should want to take Paul seriously, but we also have to recognize Paul's not talking about gay Christians in Romans 1. Paul's talking about people, he says, abandon or exchange heterosexual sex. Uh, you know, in, in what he just describes repeatedly as, you know, lustful desires, people who are overwhelmed with lustfulness, who were having sex with people of the opposite sex, who then go off and have sex with people of the same sex. And that's very consistent with how a number of ancient writers talk about same-sex behavior as similar to gluttony or drunkenness, a vice of excess that anybody might be prone to. And that made sense at the time, given the most prominent forms of same-sex behavior that were widely practiced and accepted in ancient societies, which could involve adult men having sex with, you know, male slaves or teenage, you know, boys or, you know, you name it, but where there's always a difference in status, whether it's a difference in class, a difference in age, there's going to be a clear difference in status that allows even same-sex behavior that was accepted in antiquity to mirror the hierarchical relations that were at the basis of 
all kinds of sexuality, including opposite sex sexuality. And so that, you know, so it's not, so some people say like, oh, so you're just saying that what, you know, either Paul was really ignorant or no, Paul was just, was describing something that was consistent with what people were aware of and what people were experiencing. Paul simply wasn't even speaking to the question of sexual orientation to gay Christians in the church who are, you know, wrestling with their sexual orientation and wanting to live that out in a, you know, committed monogamous relationship. And so I think that we can affirm with mm-hmm. Paul that sexual behavior that is motivated by lustful self-seeking is wrong. And the Christian yeah, and once, once you that. leave the world of proof texting, which is really the assumption that the biblical writer and you agree. That's really what proof texting is. You're, you're sort of on the same page, and you know you're talking about the same thing. But once you leave that, it seems like you really are on a journey of some kind of discovery that engages history and context. And, and the perennial hermeneutical interpretive challenge of bringing these horizons together of ancient and modern, that's just an ongoing task, it seems. And, and I, there are a few issues that... I think illustrate the complexities of that more than the question of same-sex relations and LGBTQ issues. That they, th- these issues just come to the fore, I think, very, very quickly. No, absolutely. And I, I would, I would also just, I respect Matthew. You know, your careful attention not to be dismissive, and I think. A lot of my friends who would be more um, liberal in their theology or progressive in their social stance, often that's one of my, my critiques, is that belittling or dismissive sort of uh, posture and really trying to engage people and understand that it's maybe that we're just different in how we look at the text. And we have different hermeneutical styles, and it's not always that I'm more knowledgeable and just have a, I'm more enlightened than you but understanding our differences um, and engaging them on a, at a peer-to-peer level. So I really, I really appreciate that. Uh, we are coming actually to the end of our time, Matthew. So I have one last question for you. Just a broad question here around what would you say to someone who just isn't there yet in how they're reading the Bible um, specifically? Um, what, what advice would you have for those for those people who are seeking to understand, they have a true spirit of openness to engage the text at a different level, at a deeper level. Um, what would be some points that you would make? Uh, I would say a couple things. Um, one, I would say really engage seriously with the, you know, the best affirming arguments and resources out there. Um, one book that I highly recommend is called Bible, Gender, Sexuality by Jim Brownson. It's a New Testament professor at Western Seminary in Holland, Michigan. And it's a more of a seminary level text than my book is, but it's an excellent resource. And whether people agree or not, I do think that people owe it to LGBTQ people to really put in that effort at the level of study to really be seriously considering prayerfully considering the best arguments and resources out there. But another, the, the, another piece of this goes beyond the whole question of study. And that is to my appeal to people would be to make sure that they are staying in relationship or being in relationship for the first time with LGBTQ Christians in their own communities and elsewhere. 
and making sure that they are really paying attention to the stories and the testimonies and the voices of LGBTQ Christians because the fruit of the church's rejection of same-sex relationships and of LGBTQ people is poisonous. It is so destructive and toxic to people's faith, their relationship with God, the relationship with other people, their sense of self-worth and of dignity. It is so destructive to the church's witness in the world. And at the end of the day, it just doesn't make sense that that is coming, that that kind of poisonous fruit is coming from a good tree. Those things cannot go together. And I think that the more that people are really meaningfully in relationship with LGBTQ Christians and really seriously um, trying to walk in our shoes and trying to not just walk one mile with us, but walk two, that's something that is, that is ultimately very hard to deny. Thank you for that. So, you know, Matthew, as we, as we end here, is there anywhere online that people can find you if they want to learn more about you, learn more about your work? Where would, where would we point people to? Well, you can follow me on Facebook or Twitter. Uh, but another place, of course, I would recommend is to go to reformationproject.org. The Reformation Project is the nonprofit organization that I run, and I founded it a few years ago. We run training conferences and programs all across the country working to equip and empower Christians who want to make their churches more affirming of LGBTQ people. And we specifically focus on providing them the theological tools and resources that they need to be more effective advocates and allies in this conversation. So I would highly encourage anybody, you know, go to our website, sign up for our mailing list. You can get some of our resources online. And you can also follow the Reformation Project on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram uh, to get to know, to, you know, get to see what we're up to. And even if you're not in a place of being affirming and of agreeing, I still think it would be great, you know, to, we'd still love to have you following along and, you know, seeing what we're up to and the stories and, and, the, and what we're putting out into the world. All right. So there you have it, folks, the reformationproject.org. Thank you again, Matthew, for uh, joining us for the conversation. Yes, thank you, Matthew. Very thank much. you so much to both of you. Have a good night. Bye. Thanks for listening. Be sure again to check out Matthew Vines' book, God and the Gay Christian. Uh, you can find him online. Again, he said Facebook, but also check out The Reformation Project at thereformationproject.org. You can follow me on Twitter at jbias. And you can follow me on Twitter and Facebook also at pdens. And you can check out what I'm doing on my website, thebiblefornormalpeople.com. Some of my books that I've written, my, uh, you can sign up for my newsletter, which would be awesome, and look at my speaking schedule, etc., etc. And most importantly, there we continue some of the same kinds of discussions that we are having on this podcast. Thanks again, everyone. We hope you join us next time.